I don't know if you can remember back to the time when you were a brand new believer in Jesus Christ. Do you remember that time in your life and the feelings and thoughts that you had? Everything in your life was suddenly different. It suddenly came alive with color. The Bible started making sense. It started, um, its truth started really exploding in your mind. Uh, You made probably a whole new set of friends because you started to not fit into your old group of friends. Um, You found within yourself new and holy desires, never had that before. Spiritual life was fresh to you. And you are filled with spiritual vigor, just like that last song that we sung. You wanted to serve the Lord with uh, great energy. But you also lacked back in those days a good amount of discernment about what was true and what was false. You were a bit naive about things, and you were probably very inexperienced in your walk with the Lord Jesus. There were things you just didn't know how to do in the Christian life. So what did you do? You started to watch other believers. You started to see how they prayed and to think about how they lived their lives, and you kind of watched them and imitated them because you wanted to grow. You wanted to become a more mature Christian, and that's good because you were a spiritual infant. You were a little baby, and you were just getting started, and you knew that you needed to grow. Well, that may be true of some of you right now. Some of you may be a brand new Christian. Some of you may have been saved within the last year or so, or you've been saved for a while, but you've never gone to a church where you grew a lot in the Christian faith. Um, For most of you, for many others of you, you might have been saved 5, 10, 20, 30, or more years, and so you are a more mature believer. You are way beyond that stage now, and You might just need a reminder how difficult those early years are for brand new believers, how vulnerable they are, how inexperienced of a Christian they are, and just how much hand-holding that people in that situation need from all the rest of us. By God's grace, as we continue to work on improving our outreach ministries and develop our evangelism more with our radio program going and with our literature tables and other forms of outreach going, we hope that the Lord will use that to lead more and more people to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that necessitates that we know how to handle new believers. We know how to help them. We know how to take them by the hand and bring them along and be a church that incorporates them well into the church and then helps them to find a place and helps them to just get going. HBC needs to have a more developed strategy for handling new converts. And really, with that in mind, I dedicate today's message. As we read Acts chapter 9, starting in the middle of verse 19, actually, right in the middle of verse 19 of Acts 9, and going down to verse 25, please be thinking about how the Lord might use you to help younger or newer believers in uh, the near future. How can you help them? It's Acts 9, start in the middle of verse 19 and go to verse 25. Luke's writing, and he says, now for several days... He, that is Saul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. 
Now, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. What an interesting story. Now, I want to say right away that this passage is not really written to tell us how to grow up as a Christian. It's not really written to tell how a new convert gets started, but it is written to show us how one very exceptional new convert got started with the Christian life. In fact, the main purpose of this short text is to show the authenticity of Saul's conversion. Was Saul really changed? I mean, after all, this guy wanted to kill Christians, so was he really now a true believer? You read this account and you realize, yep, this guy is a true believer because you can tell it by his actions, right? A complete turnaround from attacking the followers of Jesus to now mingling with them and promoting the faith of Jesus, that tells us he was a true repentant person. The undeniable truth about Christianity, by the way, in the first century, led a person like this, an ardent enemy of the church, into one of its fiercest defenders. So through Saul, we're going to learn a little bit about how to get started in the Christian life. We know Saul's a little different than the average Christian. He was called to be an apostle. He was a unique new believer. But I hope to show a useful and a helpful pattern that can be followed by all of us for helping new believers get started. And here, really, we're going to learn four healthy activities for new believers. If you want new believers to get started in a church, you want them to get started well in their Christian life, here's some activities we need to get them involved in right away. Four healthy activities. And actually, if we were to back up into the previous section before we get started on this, if you look back to verse 11 and verse 18 in particular in the last section, you would notice that there were two more activities that a brand new believer did. What was Saul doing back then? We see that he was praying, right? He was praying and actually he was fasting. He was praying earnestly and seeking God's face. And then he also, when Ananias arrived and uh, they had the visions and everything happened like that, the first act of obedience for Saul as a new believer was to get water baptized, right? So we want all new believers to be praying. We want them to be water baptized. Those are true of brand new believers. Those are things we want to get them involved in right away. But our passage goes on to talk about four more, and that's what we're going to concentrate on today. Four activities, four healthy activities for new believers. The first one is fellowship. Look at the middle of verse 19 again. It says, now, for several days he, that is Saul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So we'll stop right there. Saul now had a new family. Do you see it? He had a new group of people that he belonged to. He had a new identity in Jesus. He was, it was just dawning on him. He was just figuring it all out, but he was a quick learner. And he immediately knew that he needed to be connected to a certain group of people, and that group of people were other believers in Jesus. They weren't even called Christians yet. They were called the way. But those people that were followers of Jesus of Nazareth that declared him to be the Son of God, that's where he fit in. Everybody wants to belong somewhere. He realized things have radically changed in his life. He was radically wrong, and now he's been radically reversed, and now he's going and joining the very people with whom he had come to arrest and see killed. Imagine that. Just think of the courage it would take of those Christians to receive him in as they did and say, Brother Saul, you're now part of us. But that's who he was a part of. He found instant fellowship with these other believers. 
Now, fellowship is a word we use a lot in the church, doesn't it? Some churches, I remember growing up in the Methodist church and we had a fellowship hall. What that meant is that's a place that you eat and you get to do all the talking that you want to do with other believers, you know? And so you have fellowship time, you have donuts and you have coffee. But the Bible speaks of fellowship as much broader than just a time to chat informally with other believers, although that's a fun time to have that kind of time. Fellowship really encompasses the sharing of all that we hold in common in Jesus. It is sharing the common life that we have in Jesus. Fellowship includes everything we do together as believers, from our praying to our witnessing to what you're doing right now. You're worshiping with other believers, so this time is a time of fellowship as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9 says that we as believers were called into fellowship with God's Son. Interesting. We're having fellowship with God's Son. That is, we share a common life with Christ. He gives us life. But because He gives me life and gives you the same life, we also have common fellowship with each other, you see. The life that you have is the same life that I have is the same life that he or she has, and so we share the common life in all of its dimensions. That is fellowship. Really, koinonia, the term, is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17 to mean a shared position. Just listen to that verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not, it's talking about the Lord's Supper, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? That word sharing is the same word, koinonia. It's a common partnership, a common participation in something, koinonia. Now, we don't know all that Saul did with these brethren in Damascus, but we do know that fellowship with them encouraged him. It was good that he had providentially, a body of believers already in Damascus that once he was saved, they were right there to begin to do what with him? To sing songs with him, to pray with him, probably to instruct him, to get him to understand some of the verses that were exploding in his mind. He was a rabbi, he was well-trained in all the Old Testament, but he was seeing all the verses differently now, and they were saying, no, 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 that one's talking about the Messiah. Is this one talking about the Messiah? And so he was just interacting, I'm sure, probably keeping some of these people up late at night and just interacting with them and having really good, solid kind of fellowship. The oldest believers were probably sharing insights into, this is how you live, Saul. This is not how you live. That was not the right way to speak to that person. You were a little bit harsh with that person. This is the right way to speak to them. Be a little more gentle. That's how the Lord Jesus was. And he was benefiting from the fellowship he was getting from other believers. They built into him this newfound faith, and they built him up in it. They answered his questions. They moved him along to maturity. Now, he was a fast learner. Some of us are not so fast, but at least the pattern is the same. And I would say to you all out there, therein is the value of fellowship, why we all need fellowship with one another. God never intended, listen to this, God never intended the Christian life to be lived in isolation. Do you understand that? It it was never intended that you would have all of the gifts of the Spirit by your lonesome, that you would have the full package, that you'd be able to live for Christ against every temptation, just you and Jesus. It was never intended that way. Because as soon as you were saved, you were placed into a thing called a body. 
That body is the body of Christ. And in that body, you are dependent on hands and eyes and ears and feet to do other jobs that you're not all that good at, to see things that you're not all that good at seeing, to understand things that you're slower to understand than other people have. That's why there's a body. That's why there's diversity in your body. That's why God places us into a body. Really, once someone is saved, God expects them to be walking in fellowship. You think about the illustration of the coals of fire. Soon it's going to be fall and we're going to be sitting out on the deck and we're going to get together a nice little fire pit and we're going to sit around it. Well, if you take all the coals and you separate them, they don't burn all that hotly, do they? But you put them all together, what happens? They glow a little bit more and you can put your hands over it and you can enjoy the fire. That's how it is with believers. When are you most fired up for Christ? When are you most full of the Holy Spirit? Usually it's because you've had some interaction with another believer, either here on Sunday or sometime during the week. Do you understand that? So that's why it's so important. That's how God designed it. That's why the fullness of the Spirit works when we're preaching the Word together and we're praying together and we're talking about people that we witness to together and we're sharing our burdens together and, and all of that. It just, it just helps us. You saw Teresa up here and she's sharing what she wants to do with her giftedness in serving in Africa. And hopefully that challenges you. That's just part of fellowship, hearing the heart of someone else that wants to serve. That's what we get when we meet together. Beloved, Fellowship is vital to the Christian life, especially for brand new believers. They need it so badly. They need to be in Bible study. They need to be in small group. They need to be in church. And boy, is the devil going to tempt them to skip it because they have their old patterns of life and, and they have to do this on Sundays and their family doesn't want them to do this and that. And there's all kinds of impediments there to get them to be with other believers and we need to watch out for them. You know, uh, many new believers back then would have been excommunicated from their synagogue. You say, what's the big deal about that? All of their life as a Jew revolved around the synagogue. Even their business reputation flowed through the synagogue. When you're excommunicated from the synagogue, you're put out. They don't even talk about you anymore. It's like you're dead. You need a new group of people to be around. You need people that will support you, people be your friends, people be there for you. You join the brotherhood of the cross. In fact, one of the clear marks that a person really did get saved and really did believe, you see people get excited about Jesus and you wonder, did that person really believe? Well, you find out in time. But one of the marks that someone really did get saved is he desires to be with other believers regularly. Someone who doesn't want to be with other believers or who feels more at home with unbelievers, whom you have to drag out of bed to get to come to church. I hate to say it, but they're probably not even saved. Once you really have the life of Christ in you, there's something there that naturally wants to be with other believers because we share the same life, so we long to be together. That's what 1 John 3.14 points out. We know we've passed out of death into life. We know we're saved because, what's the answer? We believe in Jesus. Yes, that's true. But it says, because we love the brethren. If you love the brethren and you love being with Christians, I'm not saying we're perfect. I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not Sometimes it's not the best. I can have a sour face on my face. I know about all. Sometimes it's not the best. But I'm talking generally speaking here. You love to be with the brethren. You know something changed in your life, and you know you passed out of death into life. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 warns, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, a name for the devil? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You might say a lot of things. We share bank accounts and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. In the real essential sense, we have nothing in common with an unbeliever. Simply put, since unbelievers don't have the new life in Christ, they can't look at anything in life the same way we do. We can't have any real fellowship with them. Sure, we're going to have contact with them. Sure, we're going to do business with them. Sure, we're going to love them. But we can't have any real fellowship with them. Do you know even the Old Testament spoke of the need to have good company so as to become a righteous man? Psalm 119, verse 63, for example. I am a companion of all those who fear you, God, and of those who keep your precepts. There it is. Who do I want to hang around? Who am I a companion with? People that are busy obeying the Bible, obeying the commandments of God. And again, I say fellowship is especially essential to all new converts. Not everything that we learn, we learn in Bible study. A lot of what we learn, we learn by studying other believers. Did you see how they responded in that situation? Did you see how they still gave thanks in the midst of their trial? Did you see how they witnessed to that person? You're like, picture's worth what? thousand words, right? It's so important to learn, to glean things from people. New believers are going through radical time of mind change. And the body of Christ needs to be there for them, for we are their family. That's what Jesus promised in Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or farms. It's interesting you said farms. For my sake, Jesus said, and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And you're going to get it all back is what he said eventually. Thus the writer to Hebrews tells us, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, that's a bad habit, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When that day comes closer and closer, you're going to realize, I should have been with the believers. I should have been with the believers. I should have been more with the believers as that day comes closer. That's Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25. That's the first activity, get them in fellowship. Second activity that's healthy is witnessing. Look at verses 20 and 21. Witnessing to the faith, sharing the gospel. It says there, and immediately Saul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. It must have have astounded everyone. Verse 21, all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Wow, what a change. So here's Paul. Paul gets up from his praying and his fasting. He gets baptized in water. He's fellowshipping with other believers. And then it says, immediately he begins witnessing to his newfound faith, proclaiming Jesus. And he did it where? In the synagogues. Notice synagogues, plural, in Damascus. That means there were many Jews in Damascus. 
which was a Gentile city. Many synagogues there. And some of them have been found in archaeology. I mentioned that before. So the Spirit of God immediately produced an impulse in this called-to-be-apostle to want to evangelize the lost. This was only natural when you come to faith. When the scales from your eyes have fallen off, and in Saul's case, literally the scales fell from his eyes. In our case, figuratively, the scales fall from our eyes. Now you see spiritual truth. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness where you couldn't see anything into the kingdom of light, and you see, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's true. And what do you do? You turn to the first people you know, and you want to tell them all about it, right? I remember witnessing to my high school girlfriend after I was saved, came back from college, and she said... Tommy, you're living in a dreamland. She couldn't see a thing, but I could. I could see it, and it just like it dinked off or it didn't make any difference, but I had to tell. I had to tell her because it was the people that I know, I just had to tell them. I told my Jewish friend. He's like, yeah. He was more interested in money. Told other friends. They were like, Tommy's going through a phase. He'll get out of it. It's just a religious thing he's going through. But you're like, no, I see it. I see it. And um, you just want to share with people. It's natural to want to do that. The Spirit immediately prompts you. He wants you to tell others about what you see. And what is the essence of that message? Jesus is the Son of God. Boy, if you sum it up, there it is, right? Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Saul was a trained rabbi. Saul had great knowledge of the law and the prophets. And the synagogue was a normal place that he would go to teach anyways. And now he shows up. Instead of teaching the old stuff, he shows up. He reads the Isaiah scroll. He reads the Psalms. He reads parts of the law. And now he expounds on on why this Jesus who grew up in Nazareth and was born in Bethlehem, he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. And the people are just amazed. They're confounded by it. They can't believe it. That title means Jesus, the human Jesus, is the long-awaited for king of Israel. Now, in Psalm 2, that's a messianic psalm, God gives to the Messiah all the kingdoms of the world. If you want to know where the world's going to end up, read Psalm 2, because every single nation and every single kingdom is going to be given to Jesus Christ. He's going to own all of them. He says, ask of me and I'll give the ends of the earth as I possession, and all the nations you will rule over them. It says in verse 7 of Psalm 2, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. He is the very son of God. The Messiah, the Christ, is the son of God. Later, Paul would expound upon this doctrine, Jesus being the Son of God, and he'd write in depth about it. For example, in Romans 1, 3, and 4, where he said, the gospel is concerning God's Son. The good news that we preach is concerning God's Son, he writes in Romans 1, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, that is, in his body, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He was already the Son of God, but when He was raised from the dead, that is God's declaration to the world that this one and this one alone is my only begotten Son because He was raised from the dead. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus constantly affirming that He is the Son of God. 
Both in John chapter 10 and verse 33 and in John chapter 5 and verse 18, it makes it explicit that when Jesus claimed to be God's own son, when he said, my father is doing this and my father is doing that, the Jews immediately understood that when someone claimed to be the son of God, they were claiming to be of exactly the same essence as the eternal God. That's why they picked up stones to kill him in John chapter 5 and John chapter 10. They knew you're claiming to be God. You're saying God is your own father. You can't do that unless you yourself were God. They understood this was a claim to deity. I don't know why people today don't understand it. They say Jesus never claimed to be God. Of course he did. Every time he claimed to be the son of God, he was claiming to be of the same essence of the father. And he Paul wrote that, and Jesus said that long before the creeds were formalized in the Council of Nicaea. In the Council of Nicaea, it says Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. That's correct, but that was being declared by Saul long before Nicaea. Where did Paul get his doctrine that Jesus was the Son of God? Where did he get the gospel that Jesus the Christ saves? Answer, he did not get it from men. He did not get it from another apostle. He did not get it from Peter or James or John. In fact, he's emphatic about it in Galatians when his apostleship was challenged. In chapter 1 of that book, in verse 11, Paul wrote, For I would have you know, brethren, you could almost hear him scolding them, right? For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I got it directly from Jesus Christ himself. Paul was convinced because he himself saw the Son of God alive. And now he could see that the Old Testament prophetic scriptures pointed to Jesus as the Son of David, the Son of God. And so this is what he preached, and he did it immediately as a new convert. Now, the response of the people to Saul's preaching was amazement. Amazement. Actually, the term ex istano means that they were standing outside of themselves. You ever said that someone is beside themselves? Like they're, they're crazy, you know? They're just going nuts. They're beside themselves, right? That's what it means. It means to be standing outside of yourself. Struck out of the senses would be another way of putting it. They were like, this is, this is amazing. What he's saying? It's similar to the amazement people had at Jesus' preaching and his healing ministry in Mark 2.12 and Mark 5.42. They were shocked because what they heard coming out of Saul's mouth was diametrically opposed to his reputation as a persecutor of Christians. Saul was declaring the very Jesus that he set out to destroy. New believers need to witness to their faith also in whatever way they are capable of doing it. We don't want to wait three years before they open their mouth and begin to talk about Jesus. They must not be discouraged from speaking about Jesus. They should immediately want to tell their relatives. You say they might not do a good job of it. They're going to do it sincerely. They're going to tell them the best that they know, right? Tell their friends, tell their coworkers, tell their acquaintances. They don't have to know as much as Saul. They don't have to be a rabbi or a pastor. Just get busy saying what you do know. It's natural to want to speak of the one who changed your life and gave you a whole new purpose and set you in a new direction. 
really to try to convert those that you love is an act of love, is it not? Indeed, God set it all up so that you would be saved exactly when you were saved, surrounded by the exact people that you're surrounded by, so you would go and tell the words of eternal life to them. That's your responsibility. That's your area right there. Start right there. Say, well, I want to go to another country. First start right where you are and tell people right around you. If you are working with a new believer, help that new believer learn to witness, learn the basics of the gospel, learn the Romans road, learn how to use one of the pamphlets or the tracts, learn how to give a personal testimony. Here's what I was before I was saved, here's, who, here's what happened when I got saved, and here's how I've been living since, right? That's why we have the baptismal candidates do that. Sean works with them on that, right? So they know, well, this is who I was. I was a stinker. That's basically what they're saying, right? And then there was the gospel, and I found out it was not by works, but by the grace of God. And now this is what changed. I'm not perfect, but this is what changed. That's your testimony. Speak it, right? You say, but there were weird things about my testimony. Some people won't want to hear it. Who cares? Other people will. I mean, my testimony is wacko. I mean, I tell some people, and they're like, really, that happened to you? I was like, yeah, that happened to me. And it, it makes a difference with some people and other people that can't relate, but someone's going to relate to your testimony different than the other person's testimony. That's why you give it. Go over the gospel with a new believer. Make him learn it. He needs to make sure he understands it better and better. Cycle through it again and again. And when he has questions, answer the questions so that he knows what to do. Personally, I am convinced that many new converts don't grow because this is what happens to them. They go and they start telling other people about Jesus and they run into something they don't know how to handle. They immediately get told, oh, that's not true because the Bible has errors in it. Oh, that's not true because you realize back then in the ancient times they were so naive and they just believed in miracles, but that stuff doesn't happen. And all of a sudden they don't know what to do with that. They really don't. They, don't, they have never been taught what to do with it. And they have no class. They have no discipleship group to run to to say, uh, what do I say when that happens? But if they get an answer to that, they're like, why didn't I think of that? Oh, I wish I knew that the last time I was witnessing. Have you ever had that? You know, you wish you knew something when you're witnessing, right? And then they hear that, and now they're more emboldened to go back out there and tackle the next thing that happens, right? I'll tell you, there is no more motivated learner of apologetics and the Bible than someone who went out witnessing and heard something they don't know how to handle And then they come in and someone tells them the answer and they're like, oh, wow, I can't wait because they realize the value of the things they're learning. Beloved, I wish you knew the value of the things that you're learning in class. You keep, some of you keep skipping out on class, but you're not getting prepared for that moment when then you're going to have to go, oh, I don't know. But now you have the opportunity to learn and grow and help people when they come to you and say, but I don't know the answer to this question. Some of your kids that are five, six, seven, eight years old, they're going to be 10, 12, 14, and they're going to have some pretty hard questions for you soon, and you're not going to know the answer because you're skipping out on Bible class. <laughs> Shame on you. Kids are going to Sunday school, but not you. You got to learn. I mean, I'm saying that in a joking way, but you got to learn. You got to be prepared. You can't just kind of get lazy over time and say, "Ah, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. You need to be preparing yourself all the time. So, a new believer needs to be trained to share their faith and the fellowship. Third action, they need to grow. Look at verse 22. The third healthy action is they need to go through growth in knowledge and in ministry skill growth in knowledge and in ministry skill. Verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength 
and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Remember, when you see Christ, you think Messiah, you think King. He is the King. He's the long-awaited one. So he's increasing in strength, notice. He's not stagnant. Some people get saved and they flatline, right? Where's the growth? Where are you going? How are you improving? Saul did not flatline. He was increasing. That should be happening to every single believer. You should be increasing in strength. Now, increasing in strength here means that his influence was growing in his preaching and his teaching ministry. His skill in explaining the scriptures about Jesus was increasing, and people were noticing, and more and more people were becoming his disciples, and more and more people were like, this guy makes sense, you know? Or they weren't able to refute him, and so they were going and trying to argue how to take Saul down. But either way, he was increasing. His power in proclaiming the gospel only kept going up. He was shooting up like a rocket. Now, again, don't compare yourself to Saul. This is a very specially gifted man, a very specially called person. I'm just showing you patterns. He was on the way up, not on the way down, okay? He actually confounded the Jews. Do you know what that word means? I looked that one up. It means, the word literally means to mix together, and thus the idea of confounding. In uh, Acts 2, 6, when they were speaking in all the foreign languages, what people call tongues, but they're the foreign languages and they were all doing it at the same time. It says the Jews were bewildered. It's the same word. They're bewildered. In Acts 19, and verse 32, and in Acts 21, 31, the same word is translated confusion. The crowd was in a confusion. This means that they didn't know what to do with Saul. He was just so far ahead of them so quickly. Stephen did this to the Jews before, back in chapter 6 and verse 10. It said he'd baffled the Jews with his knowledge, and so Saul was doing that as well now. The point of Saul's example for us is not that new converts need to be as knowledgeable as he is or learn the Bible as fast as he did. I don't think any of us will. I think it's fair to say that Paul was in a very special class. He was an apostle, unlike other believers, he was called to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. I mean, after all, he got to see Jesus himself. He was told he was going to have to bear his testimony before kings, so he had to be pretty good at what he did, right? It's understandable that the Holy Spirit was working in Saul's giftedness in a unique way, but the idea of growing, growing in your knowledge of Christ, growing in your ability to, to minister and serve in whatever capacity that God has given you, I think that's here as well. You need to grow. Growth is crucial for a new believer. We don't want new believers remaining as infants. We want to see them make progress, not just in ministry skill, not just in ministry ability. We want to see them grow in faith. That knowledge feeds their faith. Godly knowledge taught with conviction, taught in the right spirit, helps to feed the faith. And as the faith grows up, the faith then bears its fruit in acts of love and in ministry and service. And so we want to get down there in that knowledge and make sure they have the knowledge of Christ, and we want to help that faith to grow, and then we'll see the fruit of what we want to see in their life. You want to help a plant, you help get down into the roots, get down into the ground and make sure it's rooted and grounded well. That's what you want to do with a new believer. Now, there are many scriptures that speak of this need to grow up and not remain immature. I think of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 compares us to newborn babes. It says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Ever seen a baby 
going for its milk, a little infant rooting around with the mouth, looking for mama's breast or looking for the bottle. Boy, it's uh, very, very ambitious, I would say, right? Very ambitious. Nothing gets in the way. I, I, I want that milk and I want it now. They're demanding of it, right? It's kind of a funny thing to see. It's, it's so important. Well, that's, that's how it is for a, a, new, a new Christian. They, they now realize they were wrong. Their whole life was lived wrong and all the light bulbs are going off and they're like, I just I can't get enough of it. And we want to make sure that they get it. By the way, growth does not come merely by listening to the Word of God. How dangerous it is for you to come in here Sunday after Sunday and listen and do nothing with it. There's nothing more dangerous Nothing more deceptive than hearing the Bible taught week after week and doing nothing with it, taking no notes, reviewing nothing, changing nothing, growing in no way. That's just the worst way to approach Bible study. You've got to do something with it. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know what it means to grow in grace? It means that after you become a believer and you think you're going to live for Christ, then you start living kind of, you start doing some of the same old sins again, starting to live nasty, and you have a bad attitude. And you're like, really, is, is God really going to forgive me? And you know what you're just about to do? You're about to grow in grace because you realize that, yep, God already knew after he saved you that you still were going to be lousy some days, and you still were going to have terrible attitudes. And guess what? God still forgives you. And you know what you're doing? You're growing in grace, that it still has nothing to do with you. God empowers you by His undeserved mercy in your life, right? And grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's knowledge to gain. Yes, sometimes knowledge for knowledge's sake can puff up, but without knowledge, you cannot grow. And the, the Christian church has always been an educating church. God gave us a book to grow, Right? He gave us words. He gave us sentences. He gave us things to learn. He gave us doctrines to try to study and analyze. You have to grow in knowledge. You say, that's too much brain work, too bad. Say, so sermons are too long. I don't care. You got to grow in the knowledge. You can't grow in knowledge. All week long, you're getting bombarded with worldly ways of thinking, right? Come on, you got to grow. You got to learn. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Oh, you got that Jesus saved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You got that down. That's third grade. That's elementary school, okay? You can't keep, you know, going back to third grade or going back to fourth grade. You got to graduate from elementary school, beloved. You got to get beyond that. You got to go on to middle school. You got to go on to high school. And for some of you beyond that. We need that in the church. We need maturity. Some Christians are stuck in elementary school because they never wanted to grow. I hope that's not you. For new believers to grow, we must involve them in ministry. You say, really? You're going to take new believers and involve them in ministry? What if they mess it up? They'll mess it up. But then again, you and I mess it up sometimes, yes? And we learn by what? Our mistakes, exactly. We learn by our mistakes. I mean, I cannot tell you how many mistakes I've made, and I've been ministering, serving the Lord some 40 years now, and um, you learn by, that's the wrong thing to say in this situation, do that, but you need to be serving. Everyone needs to be serving in church. You know, when we have uh, new people join the church, some of you folks will be coming to my house today, 
and uh, we have the new members to my house. And um, one of the things I tell them is, you've got to get involved. You know, you get lost in a church if you don't get involved. You know, I hate to see people a year or two after joining a church and they're like, I don't know anybody. Nobody really knows me. I don't know where I fit in. Well, that's because you haven't been doing what Brandon told you. Read the bulletin, right? And see all the things that need to be done. And by the way, you just looked around waiting for someone to come up and like you, someone who's exactly like you. Ain't nobody exactly like you. You're weird, okay? Just get that straight now. But, but it doesn't matter. You don't have to have people like you. You got, you got 500 people who share the same life as you. Doesn't that mean anything to you? Invite them to your home. Get started with them. Do something. Persevere. If you don't get involved, you don't make friends, you don't serve, you don't fit in, then you're going to feel like it's not your church. But new believers need to get involved there as well. So we even with our youth ministry, and Jason and I have talked about this through the years, get the youth ministering. I don't want them just hearing the Bible. I want them doing something with their faith. Get them witnessing. Get them serving the rest of the body. Get them doing something. It's only by serving that you can let it. You don't want to be just a sponge taking in and never being squeezing back out again, right? You don't want just to be eating and eating and eating, getting fat. You got to exercise, right? You got to do something with all that food you're getting. You got you to serve. You got to begin to step out of your comfort zone. By the way, some of you are not serving in ways that are are dangerous enough. You're not serving in, in ways that are risky enough. You're just kind of in your nice little safe way, and this is what you have carved out for yourself, and it fits your little schedule nicely, and you don't want to do anymore. Well, how are you going to grow that way? You got to try some things that are outside the box a little bit, right? God has to challenge your courage to get you to grow, and we need to do that for new believers. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, in other words, when you came to Jesus, as you received Him, so also now walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith. You're already rooted. Now get busy growing. Get busy maturing. You don't want to be in the same place spiritually 10 years from now that you are now. You don't want to be there. And lastly, fourth and last, the last activities, we have to actually prepare them for opposition. We have to prepare new believers for spiritual warfare. We have to prepare them for opposition. Look at verses 23 through 25. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples, notice his disciples, took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. One of the funnier things in the Bible. One technical note here. That reference to many days elapsing, do you see that? That's interesting because it's a vague enough Uh, phrase in the Greek to allow quite a bit of time to fall in between there. When we try to harmonize all of Paul's activities in his life, particularly his early days and his travels with the book of Galatians, we find out that Saul actually left the city of Damascus for a period of time, and he went to a place called Arabia, Arabia. 
Paul wrote in Galatians 1.17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. It appears that Paul's trip to Arabia comes right in that space after many days. For some reason, Luke did not believe it was worth mentioning. Luke doesn't mention everything that happened in the early uh, church, but he seems to be documenting the major movements of how the church grew from Jerusalem to Rome, the major thrusts that happened, and Luke seems to be doing that for Theophilus, whom he's writing to. And so there were many activities of the apostles that are not listed in the book of Acts. And this would be one of the trips that, that Saul took that is not recorded. Now, uh, some considerable time had to pass because it says here that Saul had already developed his own disciples, his own following, people that he was regularly teaching. So that just implies there were many months or years that passed by here. The purpose of the trip to Arabia, we don't know. That's all we have. Some have suggested that he's still early in his Christian life, and so he stole away to a place for a while to study, to meditate, to contemplate. Others said, no, Paul would have been too active. He would have been evangelizing and witnessing. Whatever Saul did, Luke just did not see it as significant enough a stage in the development of the church to mention it. Now, the place of Arabia itself can be misunderstood. When you think of Arabia, what do you think of? I think of Saudi Arabia, you know. I think of Mecca and Medina and, you know, the, the place with that the Saudi Arabian peninsula out there. But um, really, it was an area that was closer to the city of Damascus. And I want to quote from the Zondervan uh, pictorial commentary and Clinton Arnold, and he writes this. The Nabataeans lived in the land south of Damascus and southeast of Palestine. Today, their land is located within parts of southern Syria, Jordan, the Negev of Israel, the Sinai, and the northwestern region of Saudi Arabia. The capital of this vast empire was the city of Petra, about 50 miles south of the Dead Sea. Because of his commission to reach Gentiles with the gospel, Paul probably spends time in the major cities of the Nabatea, such as Petra and Hegra, where there were Jewish synagogues and where he could present the gospel to the Gentile God-fearers and the proselytes. So Saul was in Damascus, in other words, and then he went away to Arabia, but that's actually close by to Damascus. And then after many days, he comes back to Damascus where he escapes in this basket, and then from there, he says he finally went to Jerusalem. That's kind of the chronology of all of it. Back in Damascus, the second time, the Jews plotted to do away with him. By this point in time, they're done with the guy. I mean, Paul was controversial, and he got under people's skin, and he did it early. Now, this is the first of several plots that are mentioned in the book of Acts, and yes, many of them are against Paul. It reminds us that unbelievers are empowered in their thinking and in their desires by evil spirits. Now, evil spirits are not mentioned here. Spiritual warfare is not mentioned here, but we know by reading other portions of the Word of God that this animosity towards Christian preachers doesn't just come from humanity. Yes, humanity's fallen. Yes, they have an antipathy towards godliness. That's true. But the, the movement and the organization of plotting to destroy, that is organized by the real enemy of the church, and that is Satan and his hordes, right? So this has been going on since the very beginning. I mean, uh, 
Cain killed his righteous brother Abel, right? And uh, in, in 1 John, in, there's nothing mentioned about Cain being of the evil one in Genesis, but then you go read 1 John and it says Cain was of the evil one, and you realize there's evil spirits that are behind the motivation that goes on in Cain's jealousy that leads to the murder of Abel. Um, Psalm 37 and 12 notes that the, the wicked plots against the righteous. That's exactly what's happening here. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. We're promised, the righteous are promised in Psalm 21 verse 11, though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. So God often uh, spoils the plots of the evil. Evil men had a plot here. That plot somehow became known to Saul. The evil ones, the Jews, were watching at the gates. It says they were watching day and night. That lets you know how intensely they wanted to get him. If you're watching day and night, that means that this was a high priority on their list. They wanted to do away with this man. They wanted him dead. And that was their simple purpose, to kill him. But... We have our first example of the security ministry in the church right here. That's right. The first example in church history of the security ministry, we could call it the basket ministry or the, the basket brigade or something like that. And under the uh, cover of a night with uh, the protection of one of their own, someone in the church there, had access to the walls of the city. That means probably their house was on the wall and there was a window or an opening of some kind that was there and they knew about it. It was in a, a less known place and they thought, this is a great way to get Saul out of the city. Only one way in and out of the city normally is through the gates. Wherever the gates were, they're watching the gates. Uh, he was doomed. He'd have to come out sooner or later and they were going to get him. But there was a strategic opening in the wall, and so it had a large enough opening in the wall, and they lowered him in a large basket. Now, that term basket indicates a, a larger kind of container. Um, it's used in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 37 for the basket that collected all of the extra pieces of bread after the feeding of the 5,000, for example. You might think of it more as a, a hamper. We would call it a hamper, a large hamper, but a little sturdier than that. At this point, we learn more information about Paul's escape from Damascus from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 32 and 33. Paul writes there, in Damascus, the ethnarch, that's kind of a governor, under Eratos the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And then he continues to write, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hand. Referring to King Eratos, uh, Dr. Peterson in the Pillar New Testament Commentary series writes this, Eratos IV ruled the Nabataeans, that is the Arabians, from about 9 B.C. to about 40 A.D. The governor there may have been his appointed leader to the Nabataean community in Damascus. End quote. By the way, this mention of Eratos, the king, is one of the date markers in the life of Paul that allows us to know that these events that we're hearing about are still in the 30s A.D. because he was no longer king after 40 A.D. Well, since Acts and 2 Corinthians details are remarkably the same, we have to believe this was the same event, 
But it's interesting that in Acts, it is the Jews who want to kill Saul. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says it's the king and the governor of the Nabataeans that want to kill him. So putting it together, maybe we have a little bit more of a fuller picture here. It looks like the Jews were in cahoots with the Arabians to get rid of Saul. Maybe then what that means is when Paul was in Arabia, he was preaching and he was irritating the Jews in the synagogues there. And so the Jews went to the governors and to the ones that were in authority and they said, we're sick of this guy. We want him captured or we want him killed. We know the Jews did that in other places in Acts when they had complaints against the Christians preaching too much. They would go to the Romans and they would try to get the Romans to be against the Christians and mostly the Romans were hands off. They didn't see the problem. It was a religious dispute. They didn't want anything to do with it. But here it looks like they succeeded. The king somehow agreed this wasn't good for the kingdom. There was a a lack of peace that was being raised by this kind of preaching, and so he wanted to bring an end to it. And so he agreed to have Saul killed. And so uh, very humbly, Saul, the great apostle, and he refers to this in 2 Corinthians as a time of humility, a time of humbling. He lets us know that you don't seek martyrdom. When you have a chance to escape from being killed, you escape, and he was lowered out of a basket, and he was safe, and he continued on his way. Be safe today, live for another day, and God will continue to use you. Don't ever seek persecution. When God brings it, it will come. Well, evil spirits, spiritual warfare, like I said, are not mentioned in the passage but they often occur behind the scenes. And when that persecution and that opposition comes to a believer, we need to know that it's coming from evil spirits. New believers need to know that. New, new believers need to know that as they go merrily skipping along in their new life and they're all excited about their new life in Jesus, when they go to tell someone with the best of intention about Jesus and they get turned on and their job doesn't like them anymore and they get overlooked and they're like, what's happening to me? What's happening to me? They need to know, yes, you were saved, my friend, but you were saved behind enemy lines, and it's not going to be easy for you, and they need to be aware of that. They need to be aware of the world. They need to be aware of their own flesh that is opposed to their own walk with Christ, and they need to be aware of the devil. These are the enemies of the Christian life. They need to be fortified to pick up the shield of faith and put on the armor of God and know that they have a battle ahead of them. We don't want them surprised and discouraged and cut down. We want them prepared for the battle, and we need to tell them early about it. Otherwise, they're going to be a casualty. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and the ones he's going to attack first are going to be those new believers. Many new believers have testimonies that right after they got saved, Satan came after them in some very acute way, and we need to warn them and we need to be there for them. So, beloved, all of that to say... We need to work at our ministry here at Old Bible Church in having materials, and we do have some materials that are available where you can sit down with a new believer and work them through the gospel and work them into maturity. We've made some of those available uh, through our men's ministry, and there are other materials that are available as well where you can think about yourself. See someone who's younger in the faith. You don't have to be 20 years old in the Lord. You don't even have to be five years old in the Lord. You could be two years old in the Lord. Find someone that knows less than you that's newer to the Christian faith and volunteer your time. You don't need any credentials. You don't need any formal training. Just take what you know 
and realize that they're there and they need to be cared for. Put them under your arms. Draw them in. If you're a small group leader, be looking out for them. If you're just someone that wants to meet with them once in a while for breakfast or for coffee and keep up with them or talk to them on the phone, be looking out for them. And make sure we always have classes available for new believers, that we are ready there to receive new believers in. We're ready to help them grow, help them learn to stand firm in their faith against spiritual forces against them, help them to get busy growing, help them to get busy witnessing, help them to get busy uh, doing all the things that God wants them to do. And uh, that way, I think, we'll be a well-rounded church that God can use for these new believers. Amen? Father in heaven, please take our words and your word in this passage and remind us all how to grow. Please help the brethren who have stalled in their growth to realize that this is a, this is a, a warning for them, that they should not flatline, that they should be growing more and more in you, Lord, facing each of the challenges of life with more faith. And help us to be looking out for those that are weaker among us and newer among us and helping them grow in faith, Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' blessed name for the benefit and growth of his church. Amen.